That song gets me, my goodness. Well, good morning, church family. My name is Katie Pesson. I have the privilege of serving here at Windsor Road as the executive minister. Um, Each week here at Windsor Road, we have a time of worship like we've just had. And right now, we're in the four Sundays before Easter, which are the season of Advent, where we celebrate and remember the first coming of Christ, and we look forward to his second coming. Each week, we also spend time together studying God's word. We've been in uh, the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. Um, And so this morning, we're going to be looking over a series of events that take place in Exodus 15, 16, and 17. I, uh, I really do like that song we just sang. Actually, I begged the worship band to sing it today, and they did. Um, I've been singing that song a lot, kind of in my own time with the Lord the last few weeks. And it kind of started when I went to do some Christmas shopping. I was shopping for decorations, and I came across this little piece for our mantle at home. Peace on earth. We say these words every year at Christmas, but for some reason this year, these words just stopped me in my tracks when I saw them on the shelf. Peace on earth. The angels in Luke 2 told the shepherds that they came to declare peace on earth and goodwill to men. But my heart rebelled at these little golden words. Peace on earth. Because there isn't. (laughs) There isn't peace on earth. There's division, hatred, war, poverty, cancer, divorce, despair. There isn't peace on earth. With the writer of the song, I said, in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, where hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Peace on earth. How do we celebrate peace on earth in the season of Advent when it doesn't look like peace on earth around us. We were promised peace on earth, and we live in a season of already, but not yet. Christ has already come. He has already paid the penalty for our sins. He has conquered death, and yet we wait. We wait for his return. We wait for him to come and turn the world right side up again, to put everything back together that's broken. We wait for it to really look like peace on earth. Well, today, we're going to join the Israelites in their journey, in a narrative where they have that same kind of expectation and hope-violating experience, where what they were promised seems at odds with their reality. They were living in the same already, but not yet, that we are now. They were in the wilderness between two advents. Over the past few weeks, we've learned how God delivered his people from Egypt, first by the plagues, then by the parting of the Red Sea. They came out on the other side and they sang. They worshiped God for what he had done for them. In Exodus 15, 13, they said, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them in your strength to your holy abode. Your holy abode. There's no doubt that as they sang those words, they had in mind the promised land that God had told them about. 
They assumed that now that they had been delivered from Pharaoh, they would be heading directly to this promised land. But as we have learned already in Exodus, sometimes God's way isn't the shortest way. For Israel, the promised land could only be reached by way of the wilderness. God had something else in mind for them. So today we're going to talk about wilderness. We find in the Bible a variety of themes around wilderness. Wilderness can be a place of judgment, but it's also a place of covenant. It's a place of miraculous provision. The Hebrew word for wilderness that we find in these chapters is the word midbar. Midbar comes from the root word dabar, which means he speaks. Literally, midbar, this word for wilderness, could be translated a place of speaking. So one way to understand the wilderness is just that, a place where God speaks. Throughout scripture, there are instances of God bringing people into the desert to provide for them, to speak to them. God comforts Hagar in the wilderness, cares for Jacob in the wilderness, encouraged Elijah in the wilderness, And in Hosea says he longs to speak tenderly to his people in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8.16 reflects back on Israel's wandering as a time when God was doing something good for his people. They remember God who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. The wilderness is a place of good. At Exodus 15, God had just delivered Israel out of the land of slavery, and now he led them into the wilderness so he could teach them who he was and teach them how to live as his people. God has a purpose in the wilderness. Today we'll look at three crisis events in the wilderness wandering period, from chapter 15, verse 22, through chapter 17, verse 7. So let's first turn to Exodus 15, 22 through 27. You can find that on page 57 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. So as you're turning there, let me tell you what we're going to see. We're going to see three stories in quick succession that describe moments of crisis for the Israelites. At Marah in chapter 15, the people are out of water and can find only water that's too bitter to drink. In chapter 16, The people are in the wilderness of Sin and are running out of food. In chapter 17, they're again out of water. In general, the pattern is the same in each of these narratives. First, a crisis develops. Next, there are speeches. God, his people, Moses, there are speeches of them talking about what's happening. And then finally comes deliverance. God provides. So crisis, then speeches, then deliverance. Let's read the first of these three crisis events. So Exodus 15, 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, 
If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is God's word. As we enter this lack of water crisis, as we've said, we're three days since the crossing at the Red Sea. Just a few days earlier, the people of Israel had witnessed God's power in parting the sea as they walked through the sea on dry land. Only three days later, and they're in crisis again. This time, no water. As we read these stories, I think it's important to mention that the lack of water is a big deal. It's not something little. It's not a small problem. It's a reasonable concern. Humans can live for weeks without food, but only three or four days without water. On day three from the miracle at the Red Sea, their water was beginning to run out. They were concerned for their children, for their own lives. Their concern was not unfounded. And we see this in the following two narratives as well. In Exodus 16, they were concerned about their dwindling food supplies, and in Exodus 17, they had again run out of water. The people were promised a land flowing with milk and honey, and instead, they were in a desert, devoid of food and devoid of water. This wasn't the promised land they were hoping for. So how did they respond when they found themselves in the wilderness? Well, there are two verbs used repeatedly in these chapters regarding the Israelites' actions. The Hebrew words are loon and reeb. Loon and reeb. Loon is the first word used of the Israelites, and it's the word translated grumbled or murmured in some of your translations. That's throughout chapters 15 and 16, that word grumbled or murmured. That word loon indicates an ongoing, determined spirit of complaint. This was not a one-time grumbling event. This is the word used in chapter 15, 24, the people grumbled against Moses, and in chapter 16, verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. When the people of Israel found themselves in the wilderness instead of the promised land, they grumbled. The second word, reeb, is the one that's translated quarreled or maybe reviled in your translation in chapter 17, too. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses, saying, give us some water that we may drink. This word has a more active, aggressive tone. It means to debate, to contend with. Occasionally in the Old Testament, it's used to describe a physical altercation. So there is a clear escalation through these narratives. First in chapter 15, the people grumbled. Chapter 16, the whole congregation grumbled. In 17, too, the people quarreled. They debated, they contended with. It might have started to get physical. As time goes on, the people are more and more discontent and frustrated. In chapter 15, they simply ask a question in a cranky tone. What will we drink? Like a child asking, what's for dinner? Ugh. In chapter 16, however, the drama begins. Verse 3 in chapter 16 says, The people of Israel said to them, 
Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now at this point, I'm thinking about Saturday Night Live. Anybody watch Saturday Night Live? Part of the show is something called Weekend Update, where they kind of look back at news items from the week. And uh, when Amy Poehler and Seth Meyers, several years ago, hosted that Weekend Update part, they had a segment called Really, where they would just respond with a sarcastic, really, to various news events. That's all I can think of when I read these verses. Really? Things were better in Egypt, hmm? Meat pots, oh. The same Egypt where Pharaoh made you into slaves? where your backs were breaking under hard labor, where you had to make bricks without straw, you were beaten, where they killed all your male children. Really, it was better there. You know, I seem to remember you didn't like Egypt all that much in chapter two when you were crying out to me to come rescue you from here. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue for slavery came up to God. My people, you are suffering from spiritual amnesia. And it didn't stop there. In chapter 17, when they've again run out of water, the Israelites accuse Moses again of attempted murder. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Really? Moses came back to Egypt, risked death to come take you out here, listen to you grumble and then kill you. Really? Okay, that's what he did. That word, reeb, for quarreling in chapter 17, it's a picture of a trial. Moses' response when he's talking to God makes it clear he's afraid they're going to stone him. The people want to put Moses on trial and execute him for attempted murder. Whew, things are heating up in the desert. Now, it's really easy here to sort of be shocked by the behavior of Israel, to think, my goodness. What ungrateful, terrible people. They were such a complaining bunch. God had just provided for them. We would never respond that way. No, no. Actually, science tells us otherwise. <laughs> so the people were hungry. They were thirsty. Many studies have been done on the effects of hunger on humans, and the effects go beyond the common phenomenon known as being hangry. Hunger actually can cause emotional distress, clouded judgment, and affect memory. So while the people of Israel did not respond in a God-honoring, faithful way, it's helpful for me, as I read these verses, to put myself in their shoes and remember that I would likely have responded exactly the same way. Now, in response to these escalating complaints from the people, Moses' response escalates. In chapter 15, he simply cries out to God, and God takes care of it. In chapter 16, he tells the people, your complaints with God, not with me. And then he tells the people what God says to do, and they have food. In chapter 17, though, Moses is increasingly frustrated. First, he tells the people, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test me? Have you ever tried that with your kids when they're fighting? Why are you fighting? Stop it! How does that work for you? Probably about as well as it worked for Moses, because after that is when they went on to accuse him of trying to kill them. This didn't help anything. Finally, after this accusation, he cries out to God in verse 4. 
What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. The people and Moses are at their end. So what does God do with these cranky, hangry, forgetful people? Does he punish them? Does he bring down the heavenly hammer on them, strike them with a disease for their lack of faith? I think if I were God, that's probably what I would have done. I know because I watch myself with my kids. I'm so easily frustrated with them. Often I don't respond by asking for help from God or just patiently waiting for the Lord to deliver me. Instead, I'm angry. I'm irritated. Why are you fighting? Just stop it. What shall I do with these children that the Lord has given me? (sighs) Aren't you so glad that God doesn't respond like us? God doesn't do any of this, of course. Instead, he he provides for them. He gives them what they need. He provided food, water, rest. In chapter 15, God tells Moses to throw a tree into the water at Marah. And somehow that sweetens the water so it's drinkable. In chapter 16, he says, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In Exodus 17, 6, God has Moses strike a rock with his staff, saying, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. What we see in these chapters is that God provided for his people. Even when his people were complaining and grumbling, God chose to provide for their needs. Why? Why did God respond with compassion? Why did he bless the people of Israel, even though they were complaining? To answer that, we have to go back. We have to remember the purpose of the wilderness. God led his people into the wilderness to speak to them. He wanted to teach them something. He wanted to teach them about who he was and who they were. He wanted them to know two things. God wanted them to know first that he was their provider and that his plan for them would be completed with or without their cooperation. He wanted them to know that he would take care of them so they didn't need to worry. And he wanted them to know that he was God. He had a plan, and it would be accomplished regardless of their unbelief. So God wanted them to know he was their provider. These miracles in the desert are marked by several really interesting parallels uh, to the stories we read earlier in Exodus in Egypt. So in Egypt, God turned the Nile to blood, making the water undrinkable. In the wilderness, he provided the means to turn bitter water sweet, quenching the people's thirst. In Egypt, God told Pharaoh that the annoyance of frogs would come up and cover the land. In the wilderness, the provision of quail came up and covered the land. In Egypt, the Lord rained down hail as a destructive force of judgment. In the wilderness, God rained down manna, beneficial, life-giving bread from heaven. In Egypt, God's relationship with Pharaoh was marked by displays of his power. And in the wilderness, God's relationship with Israel was to be marked 
by his provision. You see, these chapters contain the stories of the infancy of God's people, and God is revealed as a compassionate provider. Psalm 103:14 says, "For he knows our frame; he remembers that we are dust." God knew that their hunger and thirst were urgent. He didn't need psychological studies to tell him what was going on with them. He knew they were tired. And he knew what was really going on in their hearts. He knew that their complaining and whining were a symptom of something deeper. He knew that the anger directed at Moses was really concealing something more desperate. He used the bitterness of the water at Marah to unearth the bitterness lurking in their hearts. We see the real issue in chapter 17, 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? That last question, is the Lord among us or not? This was the real issue, buried beneath the layers of complaining, whining, and arguing. Is God really with us? God promised us a land flowing with milk and honey, but here we are in a desert. We're running out of food and water. We don't know when we'll get there. In Egypt, we were slaves, but at least we knew what to expect. Is this God really to be trusted? Is this God really for us? These three stories are told in succession on purpose. It's to outline the absolute absurdity of that question, is God with us? Just three days before Exodus 15, God had rescued them in a stunningly miraculous way. They walked through the sea on dry land. This was after he had delivered them from Egypt through a series of plagues. And then God led them by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire through the wilderness. By the end of these three stories, he'd twice provided water and once provided quail and manna for them. And here, at the end of all of that, they still ask this question, Is God among us or not? Is God among us? Of course he is. All they had to do was look back, and that would have been obvious. These moments of crisis for the people of Israel were not a crisis for their creator. His responses made that clear. Uh, Moses, throw this tree in the water. Okay, male and quanna. Quail and manna coming right up. Uh, Moses, where's your staff? Just uh, hit that rock. It was easy for God to meet their needs. Easy. If only the people of God had first cried out to him, they would have been spared this frustration and anger and, you know, attempted murder. I told the story in these chapters to my kids this week, and I asked them what they thought the Israelites would do when they ran out of food and water in the desert. My six-year-old, without waiting, said, well, they just ask God for it, right? It's so easy to a child. But in the midst of our circumstances, we miss it. Our circumstances cloud our memories. Psalm 106, 10 to 13 describes their state at that point. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. Church family, how often does our complaining grumbling, anxiety, betray our hearts? How often is our discontent at someone else really an indictment of our standing with God? How often is our criticism toward our boss 
or spouse or children, really a concealed criticism of God's provision. Why did you put me in this job? Why did you make me a mom? Do you see what's happening in our world? At the core, we're really asking, is God with us? God, will you really give me what I need to be a good parent? Will you really provide for me, even if I get laid off? Can you really fix all that is broken in this world? Are you really with us or not? We, like the people of Israel, become overwhelmed by our circumstances, legitimately overwhelming though they are, and we forget who our Creator is. Since the garden where Adam and Eve first doubted God's goodness, this has been our struggle. We struggle to trust God, to believe that He's not holding out on us. In these moments, we, like the people of Israel, need only to look back to see that God has been with us all along. By revealing himself as our provider, God is inviting us to live a peaceful life, marked by a deep, soul-filling rest in his care for us. The Old Testament writers often use a literary structure called a chiasm when they're writing. A chiasm is a sequence of ideas presented and then repeated in reverse order, and the result is kind of a mirror effect throughout a chapter. It comes from the Greek letter chi, which looks like our letter X. And the middle of the chiasm is often the most important theme that the author wants us to pay attention to. On the screen, I've got a slide, and I've outlined the chiastic structure of Exodus 15 through 17. As you can see, the chapters begin and end with the crisis of an attack from an enemy. Next are two crises around a lack of water, and in the middle, in the crisis of food, God provides manna and quail. In the middle of chapter 17, or 16, excuse me, as he gives instructions for the receiving of the provision of manna and quail, God first commands the whole people of Israel to, to observe the Sabbath. Exodus 16, 29 and 30 says, See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Right here, in the middle of these external crises, God shows his people what it looks like to fully rely on him. Sabbath. Rest. Trust that what you gather on day six will be enough for day seven. Trust that I will provide for you. I will take care of you. The people of God are to be marked by Sabbath rest. The invitation to trust his provision is an invitation to a life of peace. The first lesson God wants to teach the people of Israel is that they can trust in his provision for them. And the second lesson in today's big idea is this. God will provide for us not because of our worthiness, but because of his plan, because of his character. At no point in these stories do the people of Israel seem worthy of receiving provision. All they did was complain. And yet God had a plan. He had made a promise. He promised in the Garden of Eden to send someone to undo what Adam and Eve had done and broken at the fall. He promised to bless all nations on earth through Abraham. He repeated that promise to Isaac and Jacob. And his plan to bring salvation to all mankind through the people of Israel could not be thwarted 
not even by their unbelief. Philippians 1.6 tells us that I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God finishes what he starts. Our God keeps his promises. He's faithful, even when we're not. God chose the people of Israel through whom to bring a new and better Moses. Centuries later, he came in the person of Jesus at Christmas. God provided water for temporary relief at Mara and Meribah. But in John 4.14, Jesus says, Whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. In the wilderness, God provided 40 years of sustenance with manna. But in John 6, we learn about the one who is the bread of life. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. This is the will of my Father, that he who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God sent Jesus to do what the Israelites could not, what we could not. Jesus faced hunger in the wilderness. He was tempted in the wilderness. On the cross, as he died our death, he thirsted. God sent his son, and people did to him what they wanted to do to Moses. And through it all, Jesus remained faithful, without sin. In his death, Christ took all our sin on his body. In his resurrection, he ended the reign of death. He reversed the brokenness of the fall. And because of this, we have a promise that all things will be renewed. We've been promised a day when war, disease, sadness, anger, and despair will all end. And this will happen regardless of what any human says or does. Because God declares in Isaiah 55, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God will finish what he starts. And so here we are in this season of Advent. We look back to the promise that was delivered in the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ, and we look ahead to his return when he will make all things right. Just as the people of Israel were promised a land flowing with milk and honey, we've been promised paradise in heaven. So how then will we live in this already but not yet wilderness? As we live and labor toward the day of Christ's return, how will we live? The peaceful Sabbath life doesn't mean we sit idly by, ignorant of the pain of the world. Sabbath life doesn't mean pretending that nothing is wrong. It just means that, as Paul says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. There will be a day when Revelation 21 comes true, when he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain for the former things will have passed away. So on days when this world seems like too much, we can rest knowing that God is still on his throne. We work toward the restoration of this world knowing that one day it will be fully restored. So as we serve in schools and care for the homeless, walk with loved ones through sickness, fight injustice, we do so with peaceful confidence that one day it will all be made right, that our God will be victorious. Do you know who wrote the original lyrics for that song we sang, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day? 
The lyrics were originally written by the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He wrote them during the Civil War. His youngest son had run away without telling him to join the Union Army, and Henry had received word that his son had been wounded in battle. On Christmas Day in 1863, in his despair, Longfellow poured out his heart through these words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. In thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Church family, the creator God who spoke the world into existence is still creating new things. The strong God whose mighty hand parted the Red Sea is still parting seas today. The rescuing God who delivered his people from Egypt is still delivering people today. The God who provided water from a rock and manna from heaven is still providing for his people today. The God who sent his only son into the world will send him back again. And when he returns, he will make all things right. He has a plan, and he will do what he says he will do. Yeah. Well, the band is going to come back up, and we're going to sing. We're going to sing of God's faithfulness. We're going to respond to his faithfulness, even in the midst of our failure. So today, how is God asking you to trust him? Is he asking you to trust him to provide for you, to heal you? Is he inviting you to trust in his sovereignty, even in the face of the world's evil? The life of the people of God is marked by rest. So church family, rest in God's care. Rest in his provision. Rest in his promise that he will renew all things. Rest.